Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. I'm looking at Zambonis. I'm looking at the ice. We are in the bowels of the Enterprise Center after game four. Don't you want to know what I'm looking at? Of the... What are you looking? Yeah, what are you looking at right now? Your eyes and a big sign of media dining. <laughs> That's right. If there's no, any any image that best captures your experience of doing this podcast, it's my face and the word dining. It's pretty good. But we're here. It's a it's a celebration here in St. Louis because it's a two two series, and we're going to talk about it. Uh, we're we're going to talk about it with Steve Wino. We're going to talk about it with Joe Neeson, mm-hmm. and we're going to talk about it with you, the ESPN on Ice listener. Because it's time for another edition of our podcast on your feed. So let's start the show proper, shall we? Wires the shot on. Rebound, they score! Ryan O'Reilly out of midair, swats it home! Both teams are, are built very large. Big body team. Big boy talk. It was a rough game. It was a physical game, but uh, they let them play. They let them hit each other. They were a desperate team. I guess they were a little bit more desperate than we were today. They were almost better. We were relentless, I thought, tonight. Like, we didn't stop for 60 minutes. Guys were just pounding pucks and on pucks and, and working and reloading and doing all the little things right. And you can bring out the Zamboni. First ever win on home ice in the Stanley Cup final for the St. Louis Blues. KMOX. From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. Hey everybody, it's ESPN on ice. It's the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. And yeah, it's St. Louis. It's punchy. It's like uh, 2.25 in the morning central time. So 1.25 in the morning east coast time. Opposite. What? What? No, that's the, we're one behind. We're an hour behind. Yeah, so it's 125 here and 225 there. No, it's 12.25 here. Oh, I think it's 225 here. I haven't looked at my watch in like, I don't know, hours. I don't even think it's working. I just wear it for fashion, let's be honest. It, it's kind of like we've been in Vegas. We haven't seen the sun in a while uh, now that I think about it. But anyways, 2-2 series. I, I'm going to say something that I know the Blues fans don't like, but I'm going to say it anyway. Both of the wins that have come in this series have come in games in which the Bruins have played with five defensemen. That is an undisputable fact. Great point. And the Blues fans got very salty with me. They're like, they're like, wait, you heck, wait, wait, and a pr-. come on. This is the fact of life. There have been two games in which they've won. The first game is when Grizzly was taken out by Sunquist. The second game they won is when Chara went out after taking a puck to the face and bled all over the ice. I don't even know how high that puck went. They hit him in the face. What? The only counterpoint I would make is that it felt all game that the Blues were outplaying the Bruins. I would agree. And Chara left in the second. I would agree, Late yeah. In the second. But wasn't in the thir- there for the third. No, of course. And that's where they pulled away. And that's where they pulled away, exactly. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to say that the Blues didn't earn it. I'm not trying to say that I didn't think the Blues would win. I picked the Blues in the game on the Daily Wager. I thought that the this series would be tied 2-2 going back to Boston. I'm simply stating a fact that both of the games in which the Blues won... One of the Bruins defensemen didn't finish the game. That's all I'm saying. And to build off of that point, Blues fans might feel good about the <laughs> fact that if Char cannot go for game five, and he, it's very unclear, you know, yeah. he got stitches. If you haven't had an update yet, he had stitches. He's probably going to need some dental work. I'd say it's 
50-50 whether he makes it back or not. We saw Vince Dunn Frank, take a long I, amount of time. I think Frank Cervelli said there was some, some talk from a Bruins source. He might even have a broken jaw. Not great, Bob. Not, not great. great Bob. And, and so you, you wonder about his status for Game 5, and then Grizzly's status for Game 5 is kind of dicey as well. So my point was going to be is that, okay, then you look at who their replacement's going to be. And you can put in Stephen Camper, who's played two games in the Stanley Cup playoffs so far, mm-hmm. including scoring that big goal against the Carolina Hurricanes. Um, but he's a right-shot defenseman. You probably want someone on the left side like he is. So mm-hmm. who are your options? Well, it's Erho Bekaninen, mm-hmm. who I believe has played in a handful of games this year. Mm-hmm. There is, and you guys, you're going to work with my pronunciation here because I had to do it multiple times on the In the Crease segment. Jacob Zabral. Mm-hmm. There's also, mm-hmm. not to be forgotten, mm-hmm. Jeremy Lazon. None of these people are in Ochara. None of these people are in Ochara. None of them have significant NHL experience. None of them really have much NHL experience. Mm-hmm. So I think Chris Cassidy has a decision to make. And I think if you're the Blues, you can exploit some facet of this game because Charlie McAvoy can only play 35 shifts. Right. And what do you do behind him? Uh, right. And then also we saw, we saw you know, Connor Clifton was on the ice during a really critical part of the game. He coughs up the puck for the, 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 the empty netter that sealed the deal. Can we talk about, by the way, that incredible blue shift where they had the puck in the zone Dude. for three straight minutes, and Cutter Clifton was on the ice for all of that, and then finally took a penalty because he was so worn down. I, again, like I, I, I don't want to make it seem like I don't think they are in the win. They are in the win. I mean, the way that they played tonight was incredible. Uh, first of all, that shift you're talking about. Listen, I, I'm I'm an old school kind of violent blood on the ice kind of hockey guy. What a cool moment where you have this crowd of people. And they are roaring on every hit. Not, not even goals, not assists. Every time there was a check, yeah. this place went ape, and it was awesome. That was the most electric yeah. three minutes of the it playoffs. It was so tonight. cool. It, it was, was so really cool. Awesome. Um, they won the game in two ways. They, they won it because they win games after losses, and they won it because they, in the words of, of uh, the paraphrase, the great Bruce Boudreaux, got their butts out of their heads and uh, stayed on the penalty box. For the first time in this series, they didn't take two penalties in the first period, which meant that unlike the last two games in the series, they didn't get out, you know, give up five goals in the first period like they did in the last two games. They gave up a goal, but they didn't get let it get out of hand, and they had the lead going into the locker room after one, and it's because they didn't take penalties. They were disciplined. Part of that is 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 obviously controlling the game on the forecheck, so, you know, you're not on, you know, defending your own zone. And, and, and they reestablished and, that in this game. Right. And so part of that is that. And then part of it's just staying away from after the whistle nonsense or getting goaded into things and, and actually doing the things they said they were going to do in game three until they freaked out and took four penalties and the Bruins scored four or four, four or four. The other thing about it too is that when there were two power plays in this game, you know, Oscar Sun, Oscar Sunquist coming back in this game as a penalty killer proved to be a pretty big deal the for them. No, no, I'm play. talking about their penalty. I kill. don't want to talk about the Blues power play ever. I, I'm talking about their penalty kill. So I think, I think in that instance, um, you you look at the way that they were able to take, you know, keep the Bruins off the board for the first time in the series. They built some confidence out of that, and the furthermore part of the of the forecheck thing that we were talking about is, and the Blues to a man said this. You only kill two penalties in the game. Now you're in your rhythm. Now you got four lines rolling. Now you're out there like a battering ram uh, on at five on five and not getting your momentum diced up and cut and sliced up by having to kill all these penalties during the game. So 
it all tracks back to the one thing they couldn't do in the first three games of the series, which is stay out of the penalty box where they gave the Bruins 14 power plays in three games. Yeah, you know, I was in the Bruins room after the game, and Tuka Rask said they were the more desperate team. And usually when you hear desperation, you think of people doing things that they might not normally do mm-hmm. uh, current to their normal life. And I thought the Bruins <laughs> really kept their composure in a strong way while still being desperate, and I think that's a really tricky line to balance. Uh, a couple other things I want to note about the Blues, uh, and really this is just one thing, I think it was the lineup adjustments. And, look, we can't really credit Craig Ruray for putting in Vince Dunn and it being awesome because, look, he wanted to put in Vince Dunn the whole time. He was just waiting for him to be healthy. His mouth is wired shut like crazy. But he was a huge difference in this game. He obviously assisted on that first goal and and really just steadied them back there. But the addition of Zach Sanford, and we've talked about Robbie Fabry on this podcast, how they just don't quite trust him in some situations, and and they're just not totally pleased with where he's at. He wasn't great. He wasn't great. Yeah. Uh, So Zach Sanford comes in in Game 3 as the replacement for Oscar Sundquist, who is um, suspended, Mm -hmm. and he plays very well in that fourth line, and now Sundquist comes back, he always has to put him in. But they put Stanford, not on the fourth line, not on the third line, but all the way to that second line, and he was such a big boost. He was actually the third star of the game, I believe, of official records in, in the Stanley Cup Playoff Daily, which you should read every day on ESPN.com because Greg and I write it. Uh, but he was really, really strong, and I uh, strong presence, and I think you got to give credit to Bay for that. Awesome. All right. Uh, tell, tell us who our first uh, uh, guest is on this wonderful podcast. It is a friend of everyone in NHL media. Everyone has probably read him, even if you don't realize it, because his work is everywhere, and that's because he's the national NHL writer for the Associated Press, our good friend, Steve Wino-Wino. <laughs> Steve Wino of the Associated Press. Uh, Canadians may know you from the Canadian Press. Yep. But they still remember you from that. Of course they do. The Canadian Press, a launching pad for celebrities such as Steve Wino. As we do this podcast, it's hours after Game 4. Your impressions of Game 4. The Blues know what they're doing in chaos. I thrive in chaos, and the Blues do too. <laughs> you are you, you, Hold on, let's, let's just stop right there. You you are chaos. You don't yeah. thrive in chaos. <laughs> it's like it's like saying pig best. pig pen thrives in a in a in a garbage cloud. You you are chaos. <laughs> I do my best at working chaos, and so does this team apparently. Right. And, and great no, pivots. No more than than Ryan O'Reilly, who just like and that was what Chandra said to us after the game. Nothing faces this team. Like you have this shift where you're just dominating and cycling and just completely hemming a team in and then you draw a penalty exactly like you're supposed to and then you give up a shorthanded goal and the next second air comes out of the building any team could fold in that situation they didn't they, they seem to just thrive in it and it's, it's crazy to me and we have a series now that's the fun part like when you have a a response like this there are a lot of people I talked to before the game who thought the Bruins were just going to steamroll these guys tonight and that they figured something out but it didn't turn out exactly the way I thought I thought Jordan Bennington was going to have a good game he wasn't all that good but the rest of the Blues were great yeah I mean he's still 7-2 and two. Like a eight, he, he 188 sure. goals against. I mean, he's he did it. He, he once again. The thing about Bennington that's always striking about to me, at least, is that he's never like Jonathan Quick. Like he's never like the, the guy with ten shutouts in the postseason or anything. He just kind of like makes the saves they need him to make when they need him made it. When we need them made. I mean, that's kind of just what he is. That's fine. That's makes him Chris Osgood. Oh, no, to, to be more forward-thinking, Steve, I'm just curious where you think, because this series so far has been one team's played very well, the other team's played not so well, back and forth, back and forth. What do you think is going to be the breaking point in these last three games? Whether Zidane Chara can play. Yeah. I do. I, I think I think that's going to be, because now you look at a Bruins team that might be down two of its top 
six defensemen mm-hmm. against a Blues team that is getting back to full strength. Vince Dunn is back. Even though Vince Dunn's playing with wires in his mouth and he's more machine than man and it's not good now, <laughs> that he's back on the ice and he makes such a big difference. And not having Zdeno Chara, like John Moore was playing with Charlie McAvoy at times tonight, mm-hmm. that ain't going to work. Well, I mean, Connor Clifton, who, as uh, uh, Bruce Cassidy noted early in the se- early in the series, very average defenseman, is what he called As him. Greg has noted. I still can't. Okay. Great jersey guy. I, great, All three of us are jersey guys. Great, he's, he's from, his, from Pennsylvania. So you're an honor. I don't, think I, I don't know if I told my Connor Clifton story in the podcast yet, have I? So, Go for it. so wait, wait, you have a Connor Clifton story? Yeah, so my dad. Is White Castle? My, no. They'd be very Jersey or a well, diner. I know stories recently have involved White Castle. So my dad, he wants to share. my dad tells me, he's like, he keeps on texting me and texting me. And he's, he's written letters to like the local papers in Jersey. He's like, Connor Clifton, you got to talk to him. He, he grew up in our neighborhood in, in Mattawan, New Jersey. I'm like, all right, great. Because now I knew that there was a family called the Cliftons that lived down the block from us. They had a big driveway. We used to sit on skateboards and go down the driveway and crash into the garage. They probably weren't keen on that. And so finally I go to Connor Clifton. I'm like, I'm like, hey, I've been meaning to talk to you, man. Like we're actually from the same, uh, the same time. I live on Lakeside Drive in Matawan. He goes, oh, my grandmother lived there. So this kid's not even from Madawan. He's from Long Branch. So I go over to and start. It's not to Central Jersey. And I start. I start. I start rapping. Central Jersey's not a thing. I, I, <laughs> I was setting you up. I start rapping to him about 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 the hometown, and he just his eyes glaze over. I said to my dad, "I'm like, he's not from Madawan." My dad's like, "Ah, close enough." That's how I am whenever you talk to me about anything. So it's okay. Oh goddamn! All right. So what you guys might not know, sorry to pivot from Greg's great story. Thank you. Um, is that Wino is legendary for running the quote loop, and that's how all of us writers kind of share resources and get the quotes. So Wino, you see the quotes all the time. I want you to do a power ranking: the top <laughs> five quotes in the series and the five worst quotes in the series by person. So by person. Yes. Um, Tory Krug is number one. Okay. Over Bruce Cassidy. Quote. No, no, no. Are we doing just players or are we doing players and coaches? Anyone no, no. You take the coaches from. out of it. Okay. Take the coaches out of it. We're taking the coaches out of it. I think Tory Krug is one. The Blues have a really good room. I mean, like, mm-hmm. we know this from the series and everybody's been talking. Well, Riley says Joel, things he shouldn't I, say. I think Joel Edmondson might be two or three. Mm-hmm. He's just been talking a lot and just, it's gold. He's good. He says anything. Oscar Sundquist is top five. He's here. really good. Very honest. Um, yeah. Look, Brad Marchand's top five. Brad Marchand ripping us, asking questions about the crowd so much, is one of the best moments in the series. It's like, mm-hmm. guys, we don't care about the crowd. We're playing the game on the ice. So, yeah, I'll, I'll go Marchand uh, three after after, uh, after Krug and, and Edmondson. Marchand, O'Reilly. Sunquest. And Sunquest. All right, we won't make you do five, but who are your three worst? I got one. Ooh. Bennington, then Bennington, and then after that would be Bennington. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not Bennington. He's not, he's not one of the three worst. He's uh, Greg's new best friend, Connor Clifton. Mm-hmm. He's the worst. <laughs> but he's always he's happy a, to be there. Chi- he's a child. He's a spare defenseman. Throw us into the spotlight. Asking him about Jordan Bennington, who he played with in Providence last year, you'd think I'd ask him about a puppy he just kicked. Mm. Like, it wasn't, there was nothing. No. There was no there I, there. Ben- Bennington is, is is a horrible quote. I mean, he's a horrible there, quote. There's nothing introspective no. about it. There's nothing else. And you compare it to this. other goalies. You compare it to other goalies who are, are all crazy people. He's very robotic. Tuka's no, not great. He's not robotic. He's zen. That's what about Jordan Bennington this morning. Brian Miller is zen. No, Jordan that, Bennington that is boring. What impressed the heck out of me about Jordan Bennington this morning was just how he was just like, it is what it is. I'll be fine. Like It was it was blasé that you come across to you as robotic. Mm-hmm. And to me, it comes across as he's got his head together. Mm. Like, I, I like I like the confidence of Jordan Bennington. You know who's bad in this series? Alex Steen has been a bad quote in this series. Mm-hmm. And I don't, not, not in general. Like He's been great in the past. But in this series, Connor Clifton... Alex Steen, 
probably some good hand candidates for this too. Uh, David Krejci, uh, which actually matches his play so far. Ouch. I know, right? That was a wino burn. Where are you on this? Because Wino and I have both thrown uh, many people under buses now. Where, who's your, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's Time your worst? for Emily to, yeah. Who's, yeah, who's your worst quote? Um, now that we've established these other I things. I don't think Krejci's that bad. I, I think he is impatient with bad questions and just doesn't want to answer them. This can be very short and abrupt. Um, I would put Bennington up there. I, I find there's nothing useful he's ever said. Um, and honestly... Well, I mean, he, was, he said one thing once. Yeah. He said, do I look nervous? Sure. And it became a t-shirt. Sure, yeah, of course. And once you say that, it becomes a t-shirt. You don't have to say anything. And honestly, it's just been the contrast of coaches because Cassidy's been, like, appointment setting. Like, I like to sit in and listen to him because it's so great. But Rube would be my worst until he went off on the refs and whined, and that was kind of a moment, and that was good, and that was newsy. He's gotten... I think, he's, I think Rube's gotten better as the playoffs have gone on, as the series has gone on, let's, and his career has gone on. Let's talk about these two coaches. Because Wino, you have a little bit of, of, of insight on both these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, Barube was a Flyers dude. When when you remember him with the Flyers, did you ever think he would end up being a coach that would take the team to a Cup final? Did we ever get a job again? No, <laughs> no, I didn't. And same thing with Bruce Cassidy from the time in Washington it was such a disaster. I didn't think either of these guys would get a second job as a head coach in the NHL. Mm-hmm. And so Barube's just stayed the, the same he was. He's the same guy he was then. Mm-hmm. There's nothing's changed. Bruce mm-hmm. Cassidy's a totally different human being, totally different coach. But Chief is just Chief. Right. By the way, I, I know the nickname would never happen now, but I love I love everyone calls him Chief. And, and it's fine. And, and, yeah, yeah, it's fine. No, but like I understand. Just a, like his approach to the hand pass, going into the room and saying, "Don't whine about this to the press." Blah blah, and, and we're just going to move on. Was exactly what they needed at that time, which is why I'm complaining about the rest. Yes. Threw me for a loop. Right, it was poetic. But, but, but I thought about that tonight and talking to the guys about Game Three, which was that you know you lose seven to two. It's the first Stanley Cup game in the city since 1970. You know, I, I think crying. I think Zach's, crying. Yeah, Zach Sanford, I think said it where it's like you know a different team would have been throwing each other under the bus and falling apart and the whole thing. But I think the same sort of spine. And also short-term memory loss that we saw after the hand pass is the same thing that I think they applied to the game three loss. And I think that's why they come out and do what they did. So, Wino, I know that you want to go out to the bar tonight, so I'm going to leave you with this question, which is an easy transition. You did a great story, an in-depth story, on the bar that started it all with Gloria. What's your best fun fact that you got from the reporting of that story. Oh, I'm, you're saying this as I'm texting with the guys from the bar who are here. They were here at the game. Huge they flex, why not? They have photo with Wayne Gretzky. Uh, they, they have a photo with Layla Anderson. They've got, they got the full experience of this. Um, my favorite thing about this is that they're a mummers band. And, and for those who are not oh, familiar mummers with Fred. the mummers, I have no idea what they're talking oh, yeah. about. Is, and you're from New Central Jersey? Are we counting this? North no. She's from North, North Jersey. Jersey. Yeah, she has that understand about friends. Philly. Exit 151. Um, she just, she's never been to a Wawa. The Mummers Parade in... Once. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. We need to get back to that. I'm no, 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 I have. I have. I'm a Krausers girl, though. Um, I, can't, I can't believe this. Uh, that Mummers Parade is an annual New Year's Day parade in Philadelphia. I'm from Philadelphia suburbs. And basically guys dress up in all these fancy wacky costumes and march down the street and they have these whole routines and they practice all year for it and they drink at eight in the morning which is why it's probably my kind of thing mm. and and there's competitions and so these guys were a group of friends from south philly that grew up together they know each other for 30 years they all got full-time jobs and kids and, and families and the whole thing and they get together and they they march in this parade and they win and gloria was their song and so getting first place if they didn't win this None of this would have happened. Wow. Honestly, if they didn't win that competition, if a judge said no, and the other 
group wins, none of this would happen. They would have kept. They would have stopped playing the song. They would have probably not had a party with the Eagles game. The Blues players would have never went in there, and maybe none of this ever. And, and what was the name of the bar again? Jack's uh, NYB. It's right. not even a public bar. It's, right. It's, it's a, a private it's drinking private club. club. Right. Literally, they bought an old bar. Mm-hmm. It was like like in high much of other. We should buy a bar. They bought a bar, and they fixed it up and they turned it into their thing. And now it's a Blues hangout for these playoff games, and people venture from everywhere to watch. Among right, they turn they turn this Philly bar into the official blues bar. the official blues bar. It's amazing. All right, Wino, you've been more than generous with your time and your and your and your gullet. Uh, thanks for coming on ESPN on Ice. Our thanks to the fabulous Steve Wino. We know on conference calls, Wino on this podcast for joining us here. A frantic, chaotic individual who we very much love dearly. Game five of, of the series is uh, Thursday night back in Boston. It's been a back-and-forth affair. Who are some of the players you're most interested in seeing insofar as how they perform in this critical juncture of the series? Danton Heinen. <laughs> Why not, right? Uh, no, look, I, I think the easy answer is to say Tuka Rath. I'm not really worried about him. I think he's going to be fine at home. This was the first game, though, and I've been following the Bruins all play playoffs. The first game in a while where he looked vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And he was letting some juicy rebounds out. He, he just looked a little out of position. Well, we should say twice in this game, Alex Petrangelo just he wristed the puck off his off his pads. That led to the Tarasenko goal. Full-on slap shot. Really smart play, by the way, by him. Noticing the Bruins were on a change. Able to get a rebound off of uh, Rask's upper body. And then, and then O'Reilly scores the game winner. So right. definitely gave up some juicy juice rebounds tonight in that game. Juicy, juicy. You never want the juicy juice. Uh, the thing about Tuca, as everyone said, entering this series, there's no way in hell he's going to be able to maintain this 942 all situation save percentage. And everyone was expecting regression. I guess there's probably going to be some. I think he's going to be fine at home. Uh, for me, it's the guys on the top line for the Bruins. Uh, mm. It really is. It's, yeah. You know, we've been talking about this Patrice Bergeron, maybe injury, maybe not. Uh, the truth is, they have now 20 players who have scored in the postseason, which is the most for a team since the 1995 Devils. And Greg, do you want to remind our listeners what happened to those? 95 Devils. Well, the 95 Devils, of course, went on to win the Stanley Cup in a historic sweep over the Detroit Red Wings in the, in the, in the, in the Stanley Cup Final, a series that would live in infamy for being uh, not only a cup one and a half a season due to a lockout, but also the start of the trap years. And I all always like to apologize for that as a Devils fan. I'm so sorry we made hockey boring for so long. Okay, that was a perfect pollute. Uh, look, they've got 20 players who have scored. It's great that Brendan Carlo can get on the score sheet and all of that, but you need this top line to sustain excellence. And we haven't been able to see it really for extended couple game streak in these playoffs. They seem to be really hot, and then they disappear. And if they're going to win two out of these next three games, I expect more out of this top line. Uh, let's pause on that Carlo goal for a second, because this is a crazy, crazy stat. The St. Louis Blues are the first team in NHL history. NHL history to win four games in a single postseason in which they allowed a shorthanded goal. Is this like an indictment on how bad their power play has been? It's, it's an indictment of how bad their power play has been, but it's also, an, you know, the kind of wacky stat that we should expect in 2019 in the postseason. That's crazy. Um, other teams in the postseason that have given up a shorthanded goal are 1-8, and eight, and they're 4-0, they're and oh, and that's, that's nutty. Um... Another nutty stat. Yes. Ryan O'Reilly is only the fourth player in NHL history 
Mm-hmm. Two of them happened before 1958. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Stanley Cup final to score the first goal of the game and the game-winning goal. Wow, that's crazy. You remember that for your bar trivia. So those he's one of my two guys to watch the Blues. O'Reilly was incredible tonight. O'Reilly was really, really, really good tonight. Um, flying around the ice, obviously gets the goal, kind of set the tempo. Petrangelo, I thought, was just as good. I thought that was the best game I've seen him play in the playoffs and, in fact, took the big L on the big board on the Daily Wager for saying Tory Krug was going to have more combined shots and points than than Alex, and Alex has his, you know, incredible game. But the guy I'm most interested in for this Game 5 is Bennington. Like, we know now what he can do after losses. It's incredible. He's 7-2, and 1.86 goals against average, 9.33 save percentage. He's allowed two or fewer goals in eight of the nine games that he's played after losses. But now you got to win two in a row. <laughs> You don't you don't want after losses anymore. You kind of want now there be some some wins. Um, I thought he was good. I thought the team in front of him was better, and maybe that's the key. Maybe the key is, is to not have him do a lot of heavy lifting. The key is have your forwards play as well as they did defensively, and then that allows your defense to play up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the thing that the big point of demarcation when it comes to the Blues winning games and losing games against the Boston Bruins offense is not allowing whether or not they have five defensemen on the ice. Well, that on the bench, that, but also not allowing the score off the rush. Yeah, and 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 not goes up. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's the gig, man. <laughs> That is not getting handed out the podcast. Oh, yeah. And Someone wanted to know if we had to go to us. Boston. We did. And he gave us a look. So Bennington, Bennington to me, is going to be a real key for, for five. Um, but, you know, like you mentioned before, like, the I keep on saying, like, the the Blues uh, like getting healthy like. and moving their lineup around a little bit, I think, produced a pretty good result for them. And I wonder, I wonder now if Bruce Cassidy, for the first time in the series... Beyond having to address the injuries on the blue line, if he starts tinkering a little bit. What's so interesting is that he has a reputation all season long as a guy that shuffles lines. It's yeah. line salad all the time. And as they started winning in the playoffs, they really cemented that roster, and he hasn't had to yeah. because they've been really good. Yeah. And you're right. I think, you know, especially this top line, if they don't quite do what I expect them to do, maybe they move Pasta down again. Maybe they, they tinker something there. But maybe it's Stanton Hyten. Maybe he really is the key He is here. the key. All right, who's our next guest? Our next guest is actually a great friend of mine. She is a staff writer at Sports Illustrated, where she typically covers football and golf. But she's here on assignment because she is a St. Louis native, and that is my good friend, and now Greg's good friend. Yes. Joe Neeson. And now joining us, I'm really excited about this because this is a good friend of mine who lives in Chicago. She works for Sports Illustrated, and most importantly, for the purposes of this podcast, she is from St. Louis, and it's Joan Neeson. Joan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. So, Joan, uh, what we're doing here is celebrating all things St. Louis this past week. It's been all about St. Louis sports. It's been all about the drought. Can you just explain what this means to your city? You know, it's been really amazing to see people in the streets wearing blues jerseys in June. That's just something I have lived here the first 18 years of my life, and uh, I've spent a lot of time here since. And just walking around today, seeing the people in the streets, it's almost like baseball doesn't exist, which is wild for what place that people call a baseball town in positive ways and negative ways. Yeah, like 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 Cardinals Cubs has been happening during the series uh, as it shifted back to St. Louis, and like it's such the the background story. Tickets were cheap as hell for that. (laughs) I know. The thing thing I want to know from you is that, like, like Tarasenko talked about this after game four, like, like, like in a normal situation in St. Louis, what is the, 
signage? What is what is what what what, what is the outward appearance of Blues stuff? Because the way he talked about it tonight is like everywhere you look is Let's Go Blues sign. Is it like that at all, or are they kind no. of a hidden thing? I mean, I've never seen Blues signs everywhere like that. You noted it when we were at the deli. You're like, this guy's wearing a blue shirt. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just I mean, people wear blue stuff, and it's a cardinal. I mean, it's just cardinals. It's, it really is, and that's not to like be a detriment to the blues. People love the blues. It's you know, and they have a very dedicated fan base. But like, I mean, there's my parents' neighborhood. There's blues flags hanging from all these mailboxes, and not that there'd be cardinals flags there otherwise. This is like people went out and they, they just want to hang flags. They're so right. excited. Yeah. Do you think we're making too much of this complex in the city of St. Louis, their sports teams? Because, you know, we talked, like, John Hammond was like, there's been three decades minus, we have to remember, the Cardinals have won and they have been yeah. successful. But, you know, you live in Chicago and there's definitely a little bit of a little brother complex. Would you say that's fair? Totally, totally. And I mean, I think it doesn't, doesn't help that people, a lot of people who grew up in St. Louis end up moving to Chicago in their 20s for jobs and things. And then, you know, maybe coming back here in their 30s to raise their families. But Are you foreshadowing, Joan? No. <laughs> please don't. Please don't. I need you. <laughs> warmer here. But, but yeah, there is, especially since the Cubs have gotten good at baseball again, there's mm. definitely this little brother complex, and that that's no fun. One of the things I don't think we've talked about is this arena, and it's interesting. So, like, when you go to a Cardinals game now, like, the Cardinals have this entire, like, complex. It's like a bunch of bars. Yes. Like, you could, you could live there. It's like a small city. This is kind of like off on its own a little bit. Like it's next not, to City Hall. Like one yeah. of the things I always found fascinating here since we started coming here, like during the postseason, is that like they keep the bar inside the arena open like an extra hour and a half after the game is over, so people have a place to go. There's not a whole lot around. Is, is, what's is, is that kind of contribute to the, the fan culture? You think is that you don't? It's not like a place to congregate necessarily. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. I, I kind of wonder Union Station, which is a big it's a train station, but it's also a large like mall, hotel, restaurant complex is right here. And I think it was more vibrant when they built this place in the nineties. Yeah. And it is it's not vibrant anymore particularly. I think that might be part of it. But yeah. And the Cardinals have built that area up down there over the past eight-ish years. Um and so that downtown can be a dead zone in general in St. Louis. <laughs> so that's that's you know topic for another day, I suppose. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to ask you, and then I'll let Greg finish it out, is we've seen some really incredible things from this crowd that are quintessential St. Louis. We've seen John Hamm kind of be the avatar for the average fan. <laughs> we've seen... Every, you know, the average fan often wears multiple scarves to the game. Okay. Wait, the can we... St. Louis then is, you know, one of the most handsome men alive. <laughs> yes, of course. We've seen Brett Hall uh, snuggling with a chinchilla against the ice. We saw Nelly pump up the crowd. We saw uh, cool. Jenna Fisher here, I believe, with her kid, uh, Jackie Joyner-Kersey, uh, some Chiefs players who, you know, are just calling the story home. Don't, don't sleep on Mark Bolger, former Rams quarterback, course, uh, sparking uh, country roads. So my question being, what is the most St. Louis thing that could have happened that did not happen at this game? Oh, God. Andy Cohen also was a pumping up the ground. on the ice. A Clydesdale <laughs> on the ice, for sure. There was no Clydesdales. <laughs> Where no were Clydesdales our horses? I didn't see any Clydesdales at all. Is today. a Clydesdale heavy enough where it wouldn't start slipping and sliding and doing that four-legged split thing that a horse would do on the ice? They do have such large hooves. I don't yeah. know what the mechanics are there, but it seems like it would work in their favor. I actually have a beer question for you because Greg was really perturbed the other night. We were at a bar and the bartender just wasn't great. Greg she was lost perturbed her voice. at a bar. That doesn't sound like Greg. <laughs> and he asked for maybe like a Miller Light or a Coors Light. She just hands him a Bud Light. Is that just the default beer at this town? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, when in doubt, just give someone a Bud Light. Well, it's like... Do they sell Miller Light here? I'm not sure. I forget who I was talking to, but it's like, like, Budweiser is like, you know, you're, you're like generations of people work for Budweiser here, yes. right? Like, so that's, that's the company. That's yeah. the thing. 
Yeah, and it was it's not locally owned anymore in 2008. It was sold to InBev, InBev. the giant conglomerate that's become in bed with InBev. <laughs> it's become less of like a family thing. I think jobs have shifted, but it didn't change doesn't change the city's like relationship with Budweiser. Like I have Budweiser branded sweatshirts. Like what? I'm a 31-year-old adult. <laughs> what do you, uh, finally, what's your take on the rest of the series? I mean, this is going to come out before uh, Game 5 hits. It's been, uh, you know, it's funny. We, we were talking before, like, a lot of people thought that the Bruins were going to steamroll. I, I always thought it was going to be a split. I don't know how the rest of the thing's going to work out, but I was always pretty sure we were going to get to about six games in the series. Yeah. I mean, I think the crucial thing here is if the Blues are going to do this, if they're going to win their first cup, they have to win two games in a row. And they Oh, you, you don't know, think they can win a game seven in Boston? Well, I don't think so. No. Okay. Um, I, think, I think they've got to kind of pull off. Okay, yeah. so what so, happens? what happens if they win here? Is it get, what's the reaction if they What's the here? parade like? I, what's, the, what's the night like? Are they going to climb on the arch? Will they climb to the top? Brett Hall, who is having more fun than anyone in St. Louis, I think, right now. As claimed, per usual. Yeah, I mean, to, to be Brett Hall, that would be great. Um, he claimed after they you know, won the Western Conference that uh, the parade was going to last a week, I think is what he said. I don't want to misquote him, but I think he said the parade's going to last a week. And people are going to go. Um, pretty slow. Well, they have to close school. School's closed. Well, yeah. I've, which, I've Thank God. These things. I don't have children, and I don't understand any of this. But, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be wild, especially, I think, after losing the Rams a couple years ago. And just kind of, it's been a downtrodden couple of years in St. Louis. What's the, what's the Cardinals parade crowds like? Were they huge? I've never been to a Cardinals parade. Um, mm. They did not win their first World Series of my lifetime until I was in college. Mm. And then I was... I didn't live here. I was living in Dallas when they won again. So mm. I've never been to a Cardinals parade. Um, the crowds look insane. Um, well, well, thanks for joining us. I'm, I'm happy we got to the parade talks. We totally jinxed them, and then they won't win anything. Um, that was pretty oh bad God. of us to do. Um, but anyways, where can, where can people, people find your work? stuff? <laughs> wow, guys. It's like we podcast together every day, <laughs> which wild. we do. This is your plug to listen to Stanley Cup Daily. Right. Work. But where can they find yourself? Every day. Uh, on SI.com and on Twitter, my name, Joan Neeson, at Joan Neeson. I don't tweet that much, but when I do, it's good. No, I'm kidding. It's not. Uh, it's a ringing endorsement. <laughs> thanks, Joan. <laughs> and thanks to Joan for joining us on this podcast. You know, the answer to the question, by the way, what's the most St. Louis thing that we haven't seen yet? Mm-hmm. People throwing toasted ravioli on the ice. Duh. That's obviously the answer. Uh, do you know what's really the answer? <laughs> what is that? I haven't seen any sliced bagels anywhere. I, I think they're fake. I, I think ha- they're a thing of the I, internet. I did get that one at the uh, St. Louis game time party during the Western Conference final, but I have not seen one quite yet here. Um, yeah, it's been fun. It's always fun to see people exploring like a city that doesn't necessarily get populated by national reporters all the time. People, you know, going to the Arch and taking their pictures and go to Cardinals games. People driving Pro Bowl pizza for the first time. All the Bostonians gave it like a C, and I'm like, have you tried Boston pizzas? Um, no hate. Boston's a great food town, but come on. Uh, but now it's time for our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessler's Hot Dogs. It is the uh, time in which we take a look at the uh, hockey media as a whole and its various foibles and hyperboles and mistakes. But we're going to broaden the scope a little bit to our friends in the sports television media watch and also the NBA. Ooh, cross-section. If you're somebody who's covering... 
the NBA final between the Golden State Warriors and the Toronto Raptors, and you are writing about the ratings issues in said series between the Raptors and the Warriors and how these ratings are quite low for the NBA, welcome to our world, folks. You do realize that Canada is smaller in population than California. Welcome to a world in which half your ratings are coming from a place that doesn't count in the ratings books. Welcome to a world in which the majority of the fans who care about this series are uh, in a country where the ratings don't matter. Welcome to our world, folks. And our world is awesome. Our world is awesome, but our world is also, as you can see, very much hindered by the fact that there's an entire country watching this thing, and they don't count. Again, welcome to our world. Uh, now it's time for uh, some puck headlines. Uh, let's start with um, the news that was really big today. Dateline, New Jersey. Taylor Hall feels no pressure to sign a contract extension with the New Jersey Devils once he becomes eligible to do so on July 1st, said his agent to NHL.com and other media. I'm in contact with Ray Shiro. This is according to uh, Darren Ferris, Hall's agent. And he and I communicate regularly and out of respect to the process, I can't really provide any details or any conversations that we engage in. It's a decision the player will have to make in time, and there's no pressure into making it. It's just a decision that is going to be ongoing. This is because the fourth period reported that Taylor Hall is not interested at this time in signing an extension with New Jersey, which legitimately is simply just the thing that has been said by Taylor Hall and the Devils since the end of the season. I don't quite know how this became news. He's been he's been wait and see the entire time. Um, it doesn't mean he's not going to sign. It just means that he's not signing now. The thing I, I feel like I've come to appreciate about Taylor Hall is that he's calculated. Mm-hmm. N- maybe not to the extent and crazy extent that John Tavares is and probably making incredible checklists, but he wants to do what's best for him and his career and his best chance of winning. And when so much is in flux about the New Jersey Devils and their future, especially as they have the number one pick, mm-hmm. you don't know how free agency is going to shake out. How would you rush into a decision? I love Taylor. I love Taylor Hall. I love what he did for the Devils. I love that he won the Hart Trophy with the Devils. I would love nothing more to see Taylor Hall be a part of what the Devils are building as a Devils fan. I also think he's got some injury history. And I also think that he's getting older. And if he decided to walk away, let's say the manifest destiny uh, that I've heard through the years of like Taylor Hall wanted to, for example, play for the Bruins one day happens. And the Devils' future is two guys named Taylor, uh, 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 Jack Hughes and Nico Heischer in their early 20s that are going to be there for the next decade. It's okay. You can reappropriate that money in a number of different ways. But again, I, I, dollars to donuts I like to see Taylor Hall stay. Um, Dateline Jack Hughes. Jack Hughes uh, says that he is going to spend the next few weeks before the NHL draft, when everything changes, quote, being a kid and playing golf. I love it. Because, <laughs> you know, a lot of kids, a lot of kids just golfing. I love it. Hitting the links. You know, I saw a Jack Hughes is still a kid moment. Today he was reprimanded by the NHL PR man who was escorting him that he didn't have his credential on. It was in his pocket. Son, you gotta learn. I saw Doc Ember get reprimanded for not having a credential today by the person who was taking credentials. These days. And she's she's like, "Sir, sir, I need you to see credential." And Doc goes, "I was shooting a promo, Stop. and I had to take my credential off. It's back in the other room." And it's and like, like Barclay the dog. And like one of the NHL, one of the NBC people was like, "It's okay, it's okay. He's he's one of our broadcasters. One of our broadcasters." He's like, "I'm sorry, I didn't have my credential." 
Um, Dateline Philadelphia. The Philadelphia Flyers get super aggressive. Nothing more that Gary Bettman likes, by the way, than when someone completes a trade during the first period of a Stanley Cup final game. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, they trade for Kevin Hayes uh, from the Winnipeg Jets. They trade a fifth-round pick for him. Hayes uh, is going to be an unrestricted free agent this summer and a highly sought-after one at that. The Flyers get the chance to negotiate with him uh, before anybody else does. And uh, Elaine Vigneault, new Flyers head coach, is the only head coach that Kevin Hayes had in his career before uh, the trade from the Rangers to the Winnipeg Jets. So apparently he has a fan in Elaine Vigneault. This signals to me uh, that Chuck Fletcher, as expected, is going to be very, very aggressive in trying to put his stamp on this roster and letting them squeeze, you know, another nice championship run out of the core that includes Claude Giroux. Claude Giroux. Claude um, Dateline, the ECHL. And this is by far one of our favorite stories, maybe of the year. For those who haven't heard it, the Colorado Eagles won the Kelly Cup last year as ECHL champions. They paraded the Kelly Cup around the ice, and then they never gave it back to the ECHL. The Colorado Eagles left that league to become the American Hockey League affiliate of the Colorado Avalanche and neglected to return the Kelly Cup to the ECHL, according to their commissioner of emeritus, Patrick J. Kelly, the namesake of that cup. I don't know if I should say this or not, but Colorado kept the trophy, if you can believe it. He said on AM 1230 in Toledo this week, they still have it. This is a new trophy. They won the cup two years in a row, and their owner just said, we're going to keep it. He said, I have never seen this in the history of hockey before. And the great thing is, you have the ECHL saying, they never gave us back the trophy, and the Colorado Eagles saying, we tried, but you guys didn't want it, or some such. And now they got to make a new one. Now they've, they've made a new one with the same etchings and whatever on it. Crazy, crazy story. Any other headlines you want to talk about on this dumb show? Um, yeah. The what? toasted ravioli being conspicuously absent after the first period today. Your oh, thoughts? You know, so there's a giant tub of toasted ravioli that they typically bring out between the first and second period here. And we talked about it on a previous edition of the Daily uh, Podcast during the final where Emily took the last ravioli, which had been, had been burned to the bottom of the bowl. Savage. Girls gotta try what a girl's gotta try. So Emily and I got real savvy, and like the minute the, the, the buzzer hit for the end of the first period, we ran over to get Toasted Rav, and, and they were like taking it away. It was gone. And instead, we got a big tray of cookies with sprinkled cranberries. I just, I, I tweeted a picture of this. I, all due respect. I mean, I love a cranberry as much as the next guy. You know, cranberry cocktail. Cranberry New Jersey. Cranberry New Jersey. The Cranberries. Zombie. Great song. But, like, if you have a plate of brownies and a plate of cookies, why are you throwing a bunch of cranberries on top of that? You have nowhere else to put them. Completely unnecessary. More of our culinary adventures here in St. Louis. Anyway, that's the uh, that's the podcast for this edition. We'll probably do another one this week as well. They said we could do two on the, on, on the feed. Very exciting. We do what they say we can. And uh, that's all she wrote. Uh, Ten minutes, guys. Okay. we got to get out of here. Yes. It's important. Bye. Bye. (laughs) We'll talk to you next time. Bye. This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.